So the story is told of a young man who was having difficulty, struggles, enduring just some hard times at school and at work and in life, and decided to get some counsel, so was speaking to, of all people, he was speaking to his mother, and just expressing to her about how tough life had been. It just seemed like he wanted to give up. As soon as he figured out and got through one difficulty, one trial, one struggle, another one surfaced. And it was the same with his newfound faith. It wasn't really a source of excitement anymore and encouragement, but it was a source of being alienated from his classmates, a source of ridicule, a source of uh, persecution in a sense. And he just thought, may it be best just to give it all up. So in typical wisdom that moms have, she didn't really say much, she just listened to him speak and walked into the kitchen. He followed her and she put on the stove three pots of water and started to bring them to a boil. She pulled out a, a carrot and stuck the first carrot, stuck a carrot in the first boiling water and let it set. Then she reached into the kitchen or the refrigerator and pulled out an egg. And she put the egg in the second pot of boiling water. Then finally, she pulled out some coffee grounds, Starbucks, and she scooped out some of those ground coffee grounds and stick it in the third pot of boiling water. Didn't say anything at this point still, just let the egg and the carrot and the coffee grounds boil in the sun just to sit there wondering what in the world was for lunch or what mom was intending at this point. So finally, after the 20 minutes or so, she called her son over and said, what do you see? Well, it's obvious. Mom, I see carrots and egg and coffee What's the, what's, the, what's the point? She says, no, come look closer. Sure enough, she scooped out the carrots, put it in one bowl, scooped out the eggs, put it in another bowl, and then ladled out some of the coffee, put it in the third bowl. Said, pick up the carrot. Sure enough, he picks up the carrot, and it was now soft and, and kind of mushy the way steamed carrots go. She said, grab the egg. Break the egg. Sure enough, cracks open the egg, and underneath the thin shell, it had become hard-boiled. Then she walked over to the coffee, said, look at the coffee, smelled the aroma, took a little sip out of that and enjoyed it, said, mom, I still don't get it, what's the point? She said, son, each of these things, the carrot, the egg, the coffee, endured the same adversity, but each of them responded very differently. The carrot went in hard and unrelenting, it seemed strong, but with the adversity and the pressure, it became soft and weak. The egg went in with a thin shell, fragile, but inside the adversity had hardened it and changed it fundamentally, it became a hard-boiled egg. The coffee, on the other hand, with the increase of heat, changed the very flavor and the very pressure that was coming on, changed it. She says, in the same way, your Christian faith. She says, are, 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 you all, are you all truth and no grace, unrelenting? You rely on morals rather than the changing power of the gospel. And then when pressure and adversity hits you, you actually become soft because you don't understand. You lose your strength and you give up on your convictions. Or are you like the egg that your faith is relatively thin? It's, it's, it's not much substance. It's all grace but no truth. And then when difficulty comes in, it fundamentally changes you and things don't work the way you anticipated. Your heart becomes hardened. You look the same on the outside, but on the inside, you're stiff, immovable. Or you like the coffee grounds that when the pressure and the heat are increase, it is the flavor and the aroma of Christ that comes from you and changes the very circumstances that caused you the difficulty. In short, son, are you like the carrot or the egg or the coffee beans? More to the point, do you know how to be one or the other? 
And the truth of it is, and we, we all know this, you don't need me to tell you this, none of us enjoys suffering, none of us enjoys trials, none of us looks for uh, difficult times, but the reality is, in a fallen world, it is a fact of life that none of us are sheltered from. So the question we need to ask as Christians, as people wondering, what does the Bible say, how does it make sense of this world, is not how do we avoid struggles and difficulties and hardships, but how do we become one from the other If we are an egg, how do we become the coffee grounds? If we are a carrot, how do we become the coffee grounds? How do we be the kind of people that actually can change the circumstance that usually crushes people or deflates them or makes them lack the strength necessary? How do we become the people that give off the flavor and aroma of Christ when the heat turns on? In part, that is exactly what this first section of the book of James is getting to. And James wastes no time at getting to his point. So let's jump right in there. If you have a Bible, turn open to the book of James chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's, a page, it's page 1011. We're only looking at three verses today. Uh, right after verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, which we looked at two weeks ago, James launches into his letter. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James has two commands for us in these three verses. We know they're commands because in the verb, it's in the imperative mood, which it is a command. He is telling us this is something that needs to be done. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's actually a command. And those two verbs are found in verse 2 and in verse 4. The first one, the most counterintuitive of them both, is that very first phrase, count it all joy. As one translation renders it, count yourselves supremely happy. Now, if it's not just me that seems like James's counsel is kind of out of touch with reality, it might be helpful to understand what he doesn't mean by this, and then to understand what he does. So let's first talk about what James does not mean by this command to count it all joys when you endure suffering. Number one, he's not suggesting that you enjoy your trials. James, the Christian worldview, is not promoting some kind of masochism that we enjoy going through hard times. He's not saying you have to enjoy it. Nor, number two, is he suggesting that trials are themselves fun or joyful. So he's first not saying we need to enjoy them, and he's not saying that trials are enjoyable. He understands that these things are difficult. It is hard. Number three, he is certainly not suggesting, as sometimes we are prone to do if you've lived in a church community for a while, that you need to put on some kind of fake smile and do some song and dance and and mask up any of the pain that trials can bring. Sometimes the very community that God has given to humanity where we can bear our burdens together and so fulfill the law of Christ becomes a kind of area where we feel we need to put up a front or put up a facade as if to say that if I am struggling, if I'm enduring difficulty, if I am hurting, I am somehow immature in my faith in Christ. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so James is saying, is clearly not saying that trials are fun, that we need to enjoy them as if we were enjoying a good movie, or that we need to cover up and pretend we're not actually hurt by these things. What he does mean, what James is commending, is the conscious choice of 
a Christian understanding of our trials and difficulties. What he is commending to his readers, and by way of application to us, is a conscious, deliberate choice and action to have a Christian understanding, a broader understanding, a God's perspective understanding, a gospel-centric understanding of trials and suffering and difficulty in our life. In other words, that when he says, count it all joy, what he is saying is that the joy ought to be real. We'll explain why that is later. But he's saying the joy ought to be a real joy. That's what he's talking about. The all refers to an intensity. Count it all joy. It is a joy. It's a joy it's a, that's complete, but it's not an exclusive joy, as in count it nothing but joy. Don't admit to the difficulty. It's nothing but joy. I, I enjoy having difficulties. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, but make sure that it is an authentic joy. It's not nothing but joy, but it is a real joy. So count it all joy. Now, just so you know that James hasn't gone off the, the wagon here, gone crazy, he's merely repeating something that Jesus said earlier in Matthew chapter 5, and it's really important to put this in its context. So Matthew chapter 5, you don't need to turn there, it's on the screens behind me. Uh, verses 11 and 12, this is Sermon on Beatitudes, notice what Jesus says. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, we're going to leave that up there for a second because we need to make an important point. Notice the emphasis that we have in Matthew's gospel here of Jesus' words is on the trials that the Christian faith in particular will bring to you. Do you notice that? Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is important. Notice the emphasis that Jesus is saying is that you are blessed when you suffer on my account. Now, I think we can make the case from the greater to the lesser um, that when we, we suffer hardships and difficulties, uh, what the context of, of Matthew chapter 5 and James 1 and other passages we'll see is actually in relation to your gospel witness. In other words, it is not as if James is just saying, hey, you're, you're, you're doing great. Jesus is saying, you're blessed when you just suffer trials in general. No, there is a specific context to it. But I believe because all of our life situations are a gospel witness opportunity, they can, we can apply this principle. But what I'm trying to do is that typically when we read these passages, because we live in a culture, we live in a free society where we don't generally endure persecution, certainly not the kind our brothers and sisters do in most parts of the globe, certainly not the kind that Christians have endured throughout the course of history. We have enjoyed a tremendous amount of freedom and blessing in this country. So it's hard to remember the kind of intense persecuted context that Christianity was birthed in. You notice in our own passage here, a passage that I'm sure if you've been in the church for longer than three years, you know this verse. But notice it's in the direct context of being a believer. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What I'm trying to get at is that this passage and passages like that are not merely saying that we should rejoice in our trials, and those trials are defined by, I might have been laid off at work, 
or um, there's been some relational difficulty I've had at the school. I've fallen out of favor with the popular group, or uh, the vacation plans I had fell apart. Oh, God's working something in me for His better, for my better, right? That's, that's kind of how we typically look at these th- kinds of things. What James is saying is there's a particular context here. When your faith itself is being tested, when you are persecuted on Jesus' account, you are blessed. What I'm trying to do is help us to see this passage in its appropriate context. James has a particular context in mind. Brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing trials and difficulties and sufferings and persecutions as a direct result of their gospel witness. It is not just general trials, but specifically because of their gospel witness. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 is saying the same thing. This is, friends, uniquely relevant to us as we are living in an increasingly secular and post-Christian culture. Understanding what the Bible teaches on enduring trials and difficulties as a direct result of our gospel witness is very important. In other words, to be a Christian is going to cost us in ways that prior generations took for granted. Let me, let me tighten the screws even more. For our children to be Christians, it is going to cost them way more than prior generations took, uh, assumed or could take for granted. When we watched uh, those three beautiful girls, well, we had Amaya and, and Megan, Cecilia and Sydney. To be a Christian is going to cost them more than prior generations that could take it for granted. We are living in an increasingly age where the Christian message, the values, the beliefs that we all fundamentally assume whether or not you were a Christian are deteriorating rapidly. You just do this and open up a newspaper and you can feel the winds changing dramatically. My son came home, showed me an episode of Bill Nye the Science Guy. I, I liked Bill Nye. I enjoyed the Science Guy. And he has a show called Bill Nye Saves the World, right? In the episode we watched, he was talking about how, how we have been wrong all the time and that gender is, in fact, a fluid reality. That's not just man and woman. That's everything in between. And if you don't believe that, you're part of the problem which Bill Nye has to save the world from. It's no coincidence that Bill Nye's name of his show is Saves the World, because what's going to save the world is the science that Bill Nye brings, right? My friends, this is just another gospel. This is just another gospel with another Savior, with another story of what's wrong, with another story of redemption, and all these other things. It's no coincidence that it's entitled Bill Nye Saves the World, because it's another gospel message. As parents, we need to be discipling our kids. They're going to grow up in this world. Mom, Dad, are you discipling your kids to live in a world that is hostile to them? Are you discipling your children, getting them ready for a world that is going to stand in increasing opposition to the things they believe? Are you teaching them what God's Word says on these things? Are you encouraging them? Are you praying for them? Are you modeling what it's like to love God and His people? You can do so right here. James says, here's how you do it. Here's one way to do it. 
be deliberate and understand and make a careful choice when it comes to how you respond to trials and difficulties. You say, well, is that even possible? Can, can we be the kind of people that rejoice when we are being persecuted? Yes, because we see it time and time again. We see it in our own history, and we see it in Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, Paul says this, I'm filled with all comfort. In all of our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. In Luke chapter, excuse me, uh, Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41, Luke records that after the apostles were beaten and whipped for preaching the gospel, they were dragged in front of the religious leaders of those days and threatened not to say anything more about Jesus. When they released him, they went out rejoicing and celebrating because they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. It's insane. But that's part of the heritage of the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview understands suffering, trials, and difficulties in a particular way. And James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 is just one of those texts. We want to build this theology of understanding. So let's look at other couple passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 5, verses 2 and 4, and then 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. What I'm trying to do is to show you that this understanding of suffering is pervasive throughout the whole New Testament. Right? So look at Romans chapter 5, verses 2 through 4 on the left. Uh, through him, Christ, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, that's a great one, that's an easy one, we can rejoice in the glory of God, but we rejoice in sufferings. What? Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So it's not just James, it's not just Paul that believes that, it's also Peter. Look at 1 Peter 1, 6 on the right-hand column. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is the, the why and what it means when James says, count it all joy, because there is something that God is doing within us, and this perspective is critical to have in a world full of suffering, in a world full of trials. This is the perspective. It's a, a God-centered, gospel-centered perspective. Friends, what is your perspective, and what is the perspective of your friends when they endure trials and suffering? Is it a futile perspective? You see that a lot in the world. What's the point? It's so meaningless, all this suffering. It's meaningless. What's the point of it all? There's no purpose. There's no hope. Is it a self-centered perspective? Oh, why me? This always happens to me, right? You see that a lot. Is it a Christ-centered perspective like Peter talks about, that, that and it ends up in this enduring hope? Is it a God-centered perspective that James is talking about that results in a virtuous character? Or is it a feudal or narcissistic self-centered perspective? See, we're going to have one perspective or the other on this, right? You are going to have a perspective on your suffering. Is it a perspective that's shaped by Scripture, or is it a perspective shaped by culture or your own self? Peter's saying one way you can bring glory to God is have this mindset. 
Now, the reason this is such an important perspective is right after the phrase there in verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, look what he says. James goes on to say, when you meet trials of various kinds, two things to note about this. James doesn't say if you meet trials, right? When you meet trials. And again, they can be the broad category of trials where the things, the, the bottom falls out in life, things go sideways, it can be those things. But more than likely, it's going to be the kind of trials that we face when our culture says, hey, hey, gender's fluid, and you say, no, it's fixed. When our culture says, we descended from apes, you say, no, we were created by God. When our culture says, no, 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 right is wrong, up is down, you say, you got it backwards. They're going to push back. They're going to say that narrow-minded view is the problem, and you're going to encounter trials. And you've got to have a perspective to understand why they're coming and what they're about. Because James says, when you meet trials, it says various kinds, right? So look at the different translations. Uh, various, many, and LT says any kinds of trials. It encompasses all kinds of things. Be ready, have the right perspective on what's coming down the pipe. And he uses a very interesting word, periasmois. It's the word for trials. It's a word group that denotes both the, the general and the specific the external and the internal. So let's look at a couple of them in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He uses the word referring to an outward external struggle, in this case, direct persecution. Look at there. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. So that's actually not the word we're looking at. When it comes upon you to test you, that's the one. As though something strange were happening to you. So they were in, in enduring persecution. This, this trial, this fiery trial, was to test them. But it also refers to more general kinds of uh, tests that we might have or trials that are more internal, and that's 1 Timothy 6.9. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation. Notice, it's translated in two different English words, but it's the same Greek word, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So the trials that we need to be prepared for to have a right biblical perspective can be outright external persecution as a result of your gospel witness, but it can also be challenges that, that appeal to everybody, a desire to be rich and wealthy, and that's going to challenge you too. In life, both for these readers and for ourselves, there's going to be all kinds of trials. They're going to be very obvious. They're going to be very subtle. They could be emotional, psychological, financial, physical, spiritual. When these things come, James says, consider them really a joy. Consider them really a joy. And here's why. Verses 3 and 4 James gives us a two-step process to which we can transform our trials to be something for the better or understand them, have that better perspective. Uh, verse 1, the first point, the testing of faith produces steadfastness. The reason we can consider it joy is because we know that God is doing something in us as a result, and James calls it here in the ESV, steadfastness. Depending on your translation, it might say perseverance or endurance or patience. And, and none of those words quite grab the, the traction of the original word behind it. Now, here's a tip. If you're ever sitting in church or at your own, you're reading a Bible, your Bible, and, and one translation says endurance, another one says patience, another one says steadfastness, that's a, that's a tip-off that 
the word in the original is so expansive that the translators are having a hard time saying, which English word broadcasts this idea most? It's not showing that the Bible doesn't know what it's doing and we're just making things up. It's actually showing more the reality that languages are so robust that sometimes certain words in one language do not carry over in another, right? Those of you who are bilingual, you get this. You understand those dynamics. And the translators are trying to figure out what, what is the power of this word? Now, uh, typically, uh, it's a good practice not to read a Greek lexicon in a church service because it'll bore most people, so I rarely do it. But this time I'm going to because the word James says that's being developed in us is rich and it deserves to be heard, okay? It's the Greek word hupomone, and oftentimes it's found in, in military eulogies it's to describe uh, military men in combat, so to speak. So the definition means standing fast, a prominent virtue in the sense of courageous endurance, as distinct from patience, it has the active significance of energetic, if not necessarily heroic resistance. For example, the bearing of pain by the wounded in combat, the calm acceptance of the strokes of destiny, heroism in the face of bodily hurt, the last standing soldier who resolves to fight in the face of certain death and the determination to die well. It is not motivated by public opinion or hope of reward, but inwardly by the love of honor. So often in ancient Greek military eulogies, if a man had hupomone, that was considered a great asset to him. It was a great way to pay honor to him to say, he has hupomone. And James is saying, when you are being tested, this is what God is developing in you. When you are being tested for your gospel witness, what is happening is God is building in you spiritual toughness. Friends, we all know this. We love it when life goes our way and things are great. And we praise God for that. But I will bet you if we went around this room and talked about the experiences that made you grow, the, the catalyst for the most intense spiritual growth in your life, it wouldn't be your vacation to Jamaica, right? It wouldn't be you winning that lottery thing. Um, you shouldn't play the lottery, by the way. Um, it, it would be your times of struggle, right? If we were to go around here and say, what was the thing that, that, that brought you to the Lord? It would be times of agony, and difficulty. Right? Scripture talks about, the book of Ecclesiastes talks about being in the house of mourning as opposed to the house of mirth. But our culture it doesn't want anything to do with the house of mourning, right? It's all about for having fun and forgetting about things that are tough and just enjoying the now. And we lack the profound wisdom of generations ago because of it. You know, if you're trying to grow in your walk with God, no matter how hard you try to be like, how do I grow in humility? God, I want to be a humble person, or how do, I, how do I just know that I need to grow? No matter how earnest you are in good times, nothing opens you up and, and loosens your grip on self-confidence or self-reliance like just hard times that just wipe you out that take you to your knees and makes you feel your need, your neediness for the grace of God is never more acute than when everything is just kind of fall, falling apart. You know this to be true. 
That's what trials and suffering and persecution does for us. But since our surrounding culture believes that life's goal is happiness, they don't have a category or, or any way useful to think about struggle and difficulty. But the Christian worldview says it's radically different. It is Life's goal is not being happy, it's about being holy, it's about being set apart for the things of God, and that brings a radically different perspective. Occasionally, you'll even meet people who aren't Christians who share this perspective. I wrote this poem this week called Good Timber. It's about horticulture, but trust me, it has application, it's really good. The writer writes this, the arborist writes this, the tree that never had to fight for sun and sky and air and light that stood out in the open plain and always got its share of rain, never became a forest king, but lived and died a scrubby thing. The man who never had to toil to heaven from the common soil, who never had to win his share of sun and sky and light and air, never became a manly man, but lived and died as he began. Good timber does not grow in ease. The stronger the wind, the tougher the trees. The farther sky, the greater length. The more the storm, the more the strength. By sun and cold, by rain and snows, in tree or man, good timber grows. Where thickest stands the forest growth, we find the patriarchs of them both. And they hold converse with the stars, whose broken branches show the scars of many winds and of much strife. This is the common law of life. This is the kind of knowledge that everyone knows, but few of us willingly embrace it. We always look for a way to end the struggle, to fix it, to get out of it, to end the pain, and we'll go to great lengths to do it, right? Escapism, denial, deception. Some people go to divorce because it's too much to keep enduring the same fight over and over again and to keep pressing into the need of grace. But when we short-circuit the process, we also short-circuit the fruit that comes from it. I was sitting with one of our ladies in our church this past Sunday, and I'm not going to say her name because I didn't tell her I was going to bring her up, and she might be in this room, but uh, she'll know who I am speaking about. I remember looking across, I said, oh, I wish, let's say her name was Susanna. I said, Susanna, I wish our young ladies could get to know you more and more because across from me sat a woman who suffers well. I said, our ladies, our young ladies, and our men. And if, I, if I've sat across an older man, I'd say this too. But our ladies, our people need examples of suffering well. And here was a woman who lost her husband of decades just recently, and she was serving others. Not as a way to, to, to just kind of forget the pain. No, it came from a desire to give to others. And she sat there wearing a neck brace because she just came out of a horrific surgery, looking forward to how she could pray for other people and serve. I said, oh, Susanna, I wish our young ladies could see you because we need models to help us suffer well in a world that doesn't know anything about suffering. By the way, I, I know this, if you're visiting uh, church, our church this, this morning, I know this isn't a metric of why, what you look for in, in, in a church, but when you're look, visiting a church, look for a church that knows how to suffer, <laughs> right? I mean, I, we don't put that on the top of our list of things we want right up there with good donuts and good music. But learning to suffer well is the stuff that really matters in life, isn't it? Because a good donut isn't going to get you through life like a good model of going through suffering and learning what it is to press into the things of God. That will take you really far. That's the stuff that matters. And I'm so glad 
that we have a church where I can throw a rock in this room and hit somebody and say, that was a bad metaphor, because <laughs> I can pick someone out and say they can suffer well. Do you know why? Because we have a community that I think people are saying, I'm suffering and I need brothers and sisters in Christ to help me. If you're looking for a church this morning, make that part of your list. I want a church where there's people there who know how to suffer well. Because by the way, in an increasingly secular culture, if we want to be faithful to our witness to Jesus Christ, we need to be able to suffer well together. So James says that this brings about a spiritual toughness in you, and he uses this word that, that helps us understand it even more. It refers to the method that smiths, ancient smiths would use to refine gold and, and metals. And so they would heat the metal up, and as the, the metal would liquefy and get more and more hot, the impurities would rise to the surface, and the smiths would just wipe it off. This is behind uh, Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, when it, when it associates this with the words of the Lord. It says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver, trained in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And the smiths would know that the metal was ready when they could look down and see the reflection of themselves looking back up. All the impurities had been burned off and it was now pure because the smith could see their own face staring back up at them. And James is inferring that a God allows the crucible of our suffering to work out the impurities of our life so that when He looks at us in increasing measure, He sees His own reflection looking back. This is what James means at the end of verse 4 so that it, it, you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We think of perfect kind of as, as there's no room for improvement, obviously, but what they mean is it's the end product being whole, and that's James's point through this book. He wants us to be like God. God is a whole. He's a unified whole. There's no fragmentation in God. There's no mixed allegiances in God. There's no waffling. There's no double-minded. God is single-mindedly, single-heartedly committed and resolute and steadfast, and that's what He wants of His people, and the only way that happens is for that refining process to take place. So for the Christian, suffering has a point. It's not meaningless pain. It's not pointless drama. It's not never-ending grief. It has a goal, an endpoint, and purpose. Point two, steadfastness produces maturity. I'm just going to run a little bit long today, I apologize. Number one, testing brings spiritual toughness. Number two, toughness brings dynamic maturity. Testing brings toughness. Toughness brings a maturity. In our cultural goal, our culture, because they have the goal of life wrong, they, we live in a culture that wants nothing to do with suffering of any sort. And we can understand from that perspective, if there's no one to redeem the, the tragedy, if there's no one to bring beauty from ashes, what's the point? So avoid any kind of suffering possible. But for the believer who knows better, who has this perspective, here is the counter-cultural suggestion I have to you. Do not ask God to take away the suffering. Ask God to give you the grace to glorify Him in it and point people to Christ as you endure it. As one theologian said, God rarely delivers His saints from the fiery furnace as often as He delivers them in the fiery furnace. I just want to take you to Daniel. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but Daniel chapter 3 is where I'm going to go. Verse 13 and 18, five verses. It's a story of three young men standing up to a king. 
Nebuchadnezzar, in his furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought forward. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach? Is it true, Meshach? Is it true, Abednego, that you do not serve, you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready... When you hear the sound of these musical instruments, you fall down and worship the image I've made, we're good. But if you do not worship, I will immediately cast you into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they they said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fury furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if it not be His will, be it known to you, O King, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, if you know the story, Nebuchadnezzar played the music, they wouldn't bow. He said, put him in the furnace. And he went to the side of the furnace, and I don't know what kind of king has a viewing port for a furnace, what that says about him, but he had a viewing port. And he said to his official, he says, hey, how many did we throw in there? We just threw three, guys, three, three young guys. Well, then how come there's a fourth guy in there? And he's shining brighter than the fire of the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar calls him out, long story short, and he's blown away at the way these young men stood up against him and their God delivered them. Nebuchadnezzar converted and then threatened on pain of death that whoever wouldn't believe in the God of Meshach, Meshach, and would be killed, but that's a whole other issue. The point is, he had a radical conversion. Now, these three young men are a picture of virtuous faith, standing up to a monarch who had their very life and death in his hands. We could say, well, maybe they were the lucky few. You see them at church sometimes. They have this amazing gift of faith. Rather, they were the living embodiment of what James is talking about. If you know the book of Daniel, chapter 1, these young boys, when they were yet children, their cities were demolished. They were dragged into exile, never to see their families again. In chapter 2, as young students, they had to make the choice to to choose to honor God and live a certain lifestyle that made them peculiar and an object of ridicule and scorn, but God elevated them and establish them. And in chapter 3, when everyone else was going along with the culture and bowing down to the cultural gods, they said, we're not going to do that. Trials and tribulations made their faith complete. Trials and suffering made their faith what it was. It was challenge, not comfort. It was opposition, not opportunities. It was pain, not pleasure. It was loss, not luxury. It was grief, not good times were the tools that God used to make three young men to stand up to a king. When we read this, isn't that the kind of lives we want? Isn't that the kind of faith we want, the kind of faith that marks people to live the kinds of lives that encourages holiness and faithfulness to Jesus Christ? When we read that, don't we say, that's what I want? I hope it is, because that's what this world needs. That's what this world needs. This world does not need Christians who are only concerned with their comfort and our church buildings and our church programs and the things we got going on. It needs Christians who are willing to stand up for what's right, to say what is true, even if it's not popular, to say it with love, to say it with conviction, and to keep saying it over and over again, to point people to paths of life, to not acquiesce, to not become obnoxious, 
but with grace and truth, point people to Christ. And in order to do that, we're going to have to suffer well. So let me give you one last reason that we can suffer well. Because we all, if you are in Christ, follow a Savior who is called the suffering servant. We can endure because like Daniel and his friends, we know that his presence will be with his people. And we know his presence will be with us always because in his sufferings and in his trials, the sufferings and trials that we endure, when Jesus went through the same thing, he was abandoned and he was forsaken so we wouldn't have to be. When he hung on the cross, he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer would be, so I wouldn't have to forsake any of you. Jesus was forsaken in his suffering and his trials, so none of us would be. So we can endure our suffering and trials because we know that Jesus Christ on the cross took on the cause of all of our agony, all of our loneliness, all of our despair, all of our grief, and he paid for it with his life. Jesus did all of that so that when we would experience any of it, we would know that it is just temporal and one day would be removed from us forever. And so when James says, when trials and suffering and difficulty come, you can count it joy because God is working in you something so amazing that if you allow it to work itself out, you will be just like your heavenly Father. And because those saints did it so many years ago, here we are two millennia later on the other side of the globe because of their faithfulness. I pray, we pray, that we would be a generation that continues it on so that years from now, other Christians would experience the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how much just three short verses can have in one book of the New Testament. Or we thank you of how counterculturally radical your word is. And Lord, we recognize how we often fall short of it. But Lord, we know you give us grace. You give us grace daily, and so we cry out for the grace. Father, we cry out for the grace to suffer well for your name. Lord, we will not look for persecutions and sufferings, but Father, help us not to be a people that will run for it, run from it. Help us to be a people that faithfully recognize that you have called us to be light and salt into this world. And faithfully trust that if trials and sufferings come as they will, Lord, that you are doing a far greater work, far greater than anything that the trials or suffering can ask of us. And we thank you for that grace and that faithfulness in Christ, in his name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.